0: Okay, so before we, before we kind of jump back into things, uh, a couple of quick announcements. Um, just as a reminder, the best way to just kind of stay connected as a faith family when things are going on, like, like stuff this week, all this kind of stuff, is to make sure that uh, you're a part of a couple things. One, that we've got your email address since you get the regular email. So if you don't get the weekly email, just take one of the little black cards, give it to me, and make sure you get it. But that will have the details for like Jan's memorial service, all that kind of stuff as well as other ways that we try to stay connected throughout the week. So, um, so uh, whether that's through the pastoral notes or through our collective prayers, all those kind of things. You can also access all of that through the church app. And so, um, so make sure you're, you're just... A part of that, because again, this, especially with things like this, like this week, when, when stuff's kind of out of our normal rhythm, that's how we'll communicate. So via email and through the church app, through push notifications, things like that. So, um, so just make sure if you don't have those that you, you take advantage of the time and, and a part of that. One thing that uh, is a little out of our rhythm that we'll be starting up again in a couple of weeks is the entering awareness group. And so if you remember uh, back in the fall, we, we were talking about, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount specifically with this idea of, um, of how the words of Jesus, the way of Jesus helps us to be ones who navigate our own anxiety and the anxiety of others in a way that leads us to peace and to be peacemakers and all that kind of stuff. And so... Um, but. But while we talked about it kind of at a, at a bigger level in these times and tried to help each other process through it, we really wanted to create some space to, for us to kind of learn the practical skills of actually doing that, of being ones who manage our own anxiety and the anxiety of, of others. Because the truth is anxiety is a shared, a shared thing, right? Whether we're sharing it with others or we're reacting to others. And so especially in the context of relationships whether those be our most intimate and personal relationships in our home or our work relationships or even like relationships with the extended family, whatever that might be. Um, we want to create a space where we can help each other develop the tools necessary to be people of peace who rest in the gospel, who live out the kingdom of God in really tangible ways um, that has both an internal piece to it, us learning internally how to deal with some of our own anxieties, recognize, be aware of uh, kind of what we're walking into things with, as well as how we might walk with others as they are coming to us in the midst of their own, their own stuff, right? So we're gonna start this screw back up again um, in February, February 18th through March 24th. It'll be Sunday afternoons from 1.30 to 3, uh, most likely right here, whether in this space or in one of the rooms, but um, but Ben Larzabal will be leading that for us. Uh, and so it'd be a great opportunity for, um, for you, if, especially if you feel like uh, being aware of your own kind of anxieties and turmoils and unsettledness is something you need help in, or like right now, if you're in the midst of some some of those things in relationships, again, at home or in work, this would be a great, a great opportunity for you to kind of learn how to navigate those well and healthy and so uh, again this week there'll be an email they'll go out and uh, you can RSVP to me directly if you want right now uh, you can send an email but there'll be an email with more details that will go out uh, this week with the entering awareness um, uh, groups so that's what we got going on so make sure to take advantage so um, as you know like we start every year off in the parables and um, kingdom epiphanies beginning of the year um, following this kind of cycle of light that the church calendar has put together um, that goes from Advent to Christmas time to Epiphany Tide. And for us, Epiphany is really this looking at the kingdom of God and letting the kingdom of God and the stories of the kingdom of God really shape our year ahead. But now we kind of find ourselves, kind of like our parable last week, um, kind of between times, between the, the time that is now and the time that is the end. And like we find ourselves moving from in this cycle of light, this kind of ever-expanding brightness of the glory of Jesus, waiting for Jesus, Jesus arrived, Jesus come in the kingdom uh, in its spectacular light, to moving towards really a kind of a darkness, into a darkness, um, revealing not just the brightness of the kingdom, but also the sadness of the kingdom. We begin to find ourselves under the gravitational pull of what is in the church called Lent, that season leading us downward into those infamously dark days of Jesus dying and entombed. While the contrast may seem uh, abrupt and sudden, the seasons change, abrupt and sudden, in truth, the inevitability of our arrival here had long been forecast. As the prophet Isaiah said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of pains and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is the story told that, that Jesus would be moving into, right? Not just the story of his kingdom come and growing and sprouting and moving to harvest, as we've talked about in these parables to begin the year, but one in which he is crushed for our iniquities. Even at his arrival, it was clear to some where Jesus would end up. As Simeon said in Luke 2. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, just a few days after Jesus' birth, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be be revealed. Epiphany is a season of, of revelation, and it seems that Jesus has more revealing to do. Revelation that comes not just through lessons and sermons and stories, Or even signs and wonders, but only in the falling and rising. His falling on the cross and rising from the tomb and ours with him. In this way, Lent, which is an old Saxon word that simply means length. It's actually a term used to describe the lengthening of days that comes as winter turns to spring. It's a time of bright sadness. Darkness entered because it is not last. Nor will it be our end. For we know that Easter morning is just ahead. That's the beauty of Lent. That's the beauty of the fact, even our turn to Jerusalem in the Gospels, is that we know where we're going, and we know what comes on the other side. Life again, new, whole, full, and forever is what awaits us. Admittedly, though, Jesus' fall and rise, and our falling in his steps is still a sign that is opposed, even by those who know what's coming, right? If we're honest, the darkness of Lent, the dark days of the cross, even the cross of Christ, sometimes is hard for us to move towards. And so the Orthodox Church has for millennia prepared her people for the Lenten pilgrimage to the cross, helping them turn from Christ's birth and life to his death a bit slower, so that our hearts are ready for the home stretch, and even more so for being brought home and living there with Christ alive. And so our, this year, our faith family, as we begin to practice Lent together, it's only a few years for us as a faith family of really implementing this tradition, We prepare for Lent in the same ways, taking a a few of the parables and persons in the Orthodox tradition, some of the things they use in their preparation for for this path, and we move from stories to relationships, from parables to persons, so that we too might see the road ahead and even long for it. So we do this with me just before we enter into the, the stories today and into the conversation this morning. We take a minute just to prepare your heart. Close your eyes or look down at the, the ground, whatever is easiest for you, just to be here in the presence of the Lord. To recognize, even as we prayed and sang, that the Lord longs for us to be in his presence and has made a way for it. And that what's true is that, as Jesus said, that were two or three are gathered in his name, there he is also. Just take a deep breath in. Breathe in in the presence of God with you, God for you. Opening your hearts to all that he might say through his scriptures. And as I pray, and then Allie will read our words for today. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the journey that we're about to go on. Help us as we prepare for the, that, that road. A road that leads us into a life given for us. A life given up so that we might share in his giving up. And so share in his life forever too. Thank you for friends to walk this journey with. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat upon his chest, saying, God, make atonement for me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house made righteous, rather than that one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Ellie? So obviously if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 18. That's where we'll be today. Contrary to popular opinion, this is not a parable about prayer. How many of us thought it was? It's not a story depicting that one man prays an arrogant prayer and is blamed for his attitudes. The other prays humbly and is praised for doing so, though that is the standard thought. I mean, don't we read it that way? The tax collector prays, or the Pharisee prays arrogantly, and so, and then the tax collector prays humbly, and so it must be, therefore, about prayer. Yet as more than a few commentators and pastors know, too often this unconscious, that is, not thoughtful, too quick, and unfortunately stereotypical religious response to our standard thinking becomes, thank God we're not like the Pharisee. And so quickly, and rather ironically, we become the offenders guilty of our own interpretation. How many of us have been there? We get angry at the Pharisee for saying, thank God I'm not like the tax collector, only to say, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. Now, this parable is not about prayer, the right kinds of prayer, though humility in our communion with God is certainly a central point. It is, however, a parable about about relating rightly. More specifically, our need for relationship with God, where it starts and from where we never mature past. It is a parable that prepares us for the journey of Lent, for the apprehension necessary to ensure that we get to where we want to go and stay there. A parable encouraging us to live now and always at the beginnings of hope, the edges of faith, as ones lost but found, buried but brought back to life, over and over and over again. Let me see if I can help us see what I think this parable is telling us. Starting in verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, held them in contempt. Jesus tells this story to those who were committed to doing everything possible to ensure that as we talked about last, the last few weeks, that the field and its good seed matured to abundance. They were committed to that, to tilling the soil, to digging up the rocks, to cutting down the thorn bushes and, of course, pulling up the weeds, to making sure that everything was separated that needed to be separated and only the good is what remained. Their problem, however, wasn't so much the work they were willing to put in, their level of commitment, but the fact that they began believing, even if they didn't acknowledge such belief, that it was their work And their persistent working, that started and ensured the harvest's arrival. Here's how we know. Luke, when introducing the story, uses the Greek word dikaiosis for righteous. This is for, for those that like language things. Here you go. A word whose Hebrew root is sadak, sadaka. I'm going to mispronounce it because I'm Texan, sorry. Which is a word in our Old Testament that's of supreme importance. When the people listening to Jesus' story heard... The word righteous, they would have all kind of perked up and listened. This is a word that means a lot to these people. It means a lot to the people, especially first century Jewish people, that are listening to Jesus' story. It isn't just a term that's kind of a throwaway, kind of a term that we use here and there for, for thinking of like living piously or maybe like living like a, um, a good life or whatever. Like the term righteousness had a lot of weight especially from the Old Testament. Here's how one Old Testament scholar and theologian describes the importance of the word in in the faith of those listening to Jesus. He says, There is absolutely no concept in the Old Testament with so central significance for all the relationships of human life as that of righteousness. It is the standard not only for humanity's relationship to God, but also for our relationship to our fellow humans, It's even the standard for our humanity's relationship to the animals and to our natural environment. It's a word that talks about relating completely, wholly, truly to everything, to God, to one another, to the earth, to making a life and making a life whole and good. It's a word that carries a a huge amount of weight. And when it's talked about in our scriptures of God's righteousness, it always means when God's being righteous, God, okay, so like we tend to think of righteous kind of as the acts that we do to, to live up to a certain standard, right? So when we kind of think about that, it's kind of like what are the good things that we do to make sure that we do good things, right? The moral, the moral behaviors, right? So obviously, like we're doing it to somewhat to kind of earn our righteousness, to say, hey, look at me, I'm righteous. But it, our scriptures talk a lot about, especially the Old Testament, talks a lot about God's righteousness. And when it talks about God's righteousness, it means his saving acts in history. God's not acting to earn something, to demonstrate something. It's actually his demonstration of what already is. It's his saving acts. So when the scriptures talk about God giving us his righteousness, it's about God acting towards us in a right way, in a way that's conducive to his character, to his purposes, to his goodness. And it's always a saving act. And so from the earliest time onwards, Israel celebrated Yahweh as the one who bestowed on his people the all-embracing gift of his righteousness. That God bestowed upon his people the all-embracing gift of his saving acts. And isn't that true from Genesis on? Isn't that the story that we told? Even when Adam and Eve took of the tree and sin entered the world, right? Like, well, how, how did they get out of that? How were they restored? How was righteousness brought back in? Right relationship restored. It's God's saving act, right? The sacrifice of a lamb to cover them, the removing them from the, uh, from, from the presence of where they would live but not really live forever, and then a continued protection, his saving acts. And so our, the story's always begun that way, and the story's always stayed that way. The people of Israel saw themselves as ones who received the righteousness of God, his saving acts. And that righteousness bestowed on Israel is always a saving gift. Never something that was, was earned, even though there was a loyalty that was lived up to with it, there was an expectation to, to live in response to God's saving acts, it was always an act initiated by God. An act only God could do. Or as the psalmist said it, as we read at the beginning of our gathering, we all arrive at the doorstep sooner or later, loaded with guilt, right? Our sins too much for us, but you get rid of them once and for all. Not me, not my works, not my efforts. You atone for our transgression. Blessed are the ones you choose to bring near, to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple, the thing that we long for, right relationship, restoration, righteousness. How? By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God, our salvation. By awesome deeds you answer us with your saving acts. O God of our salvation. So the righteous person notes Kenneth Bailey, is not the one who observes a particular code of ethics, but rather a person or community granted a special relationship of acceptance in the presence of God, who are recipients of his saving acts. That relationship is maintained by acting in loyalty to the giver of the unearned status. That relationship is maintained. We stay in right relationship with God when we act in response to his grace. To his saving acts. And so behind this parable is the rich heritage of God's gracious gifts of saving acts. God's righteousness. And the call for reflective response to that grace. So behind all this, all these actions of prayer, what's accepted, what's not accepted, is really God's acting, his saving act, and our response. Which includes how we respond not just to God... But to others in daily life, which usually excludes despising those we don't who don't measure up in our mind, right? Which usually excludes us trying to pull the weeds out from the wheat. Though we're in figuring out, hopefully quickly, even through this story, that we really are bad at figuring out what is what. Okay, so with that Old Testament understanding of righteousness on our minds, as it would have been on those listening, let's slowly begin to prepare our hearts for the journey of Lent through the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In verse 10, two two men went up into the temple to pray. Two men walk into church to meet God, to be with God, and others seeking to do the same. Specifically, they walk into God's place, His temple, that same place that the psalmist just declared is a place they're brought into by God's grace that they long to be, that they'll know the blessing and the fullness of. The visible representation of His holiness, the closest thing they can get on this side of eternity, to being in his presence. They come to that place expecting to engage with God in some form or fashion. Why else would you come? For what other reason? And like all true worshipers, especially Jewish ones, they recognize that admission to that holy presence requires certain preparations. Particularly at this moment, they come not to a Shabbat or Sabbath worship service, but to an atonement offering or the hour of incense. This isn't, just, this isn't a Sunday gathering. This isn't the once-a-week regular rhythm. This is actually something that takes place every day. And the only daily service in the temple area was the atonement offering that took place at dawn and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at dawn at the ninth hour. Each service began outside the sanctuary at the great high altar, so outside of the, the, the temple fully, in preparation to bring people in, to draw people to God. Each service began outside the sanctuary at the great high altar with the sacrifice for the sins of Israel, of a lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the altar, following an old, precise ritual, right? So every day at dawn and at 3 p.m. at the ninth hour, there was an atonement sacrifice offered for the sins of people to enter into the presence of God. Every day, this was a corporate gathering that happened where the people could come to. In the middle of the prayer... There would be the sound of silver trumpets, the clanging of cymbals, and the reading of a psalm. It would be this loud proclamation. So you have a sacrifice of a lamb, his blood sprinkled sprinkled on the altar, and then this grand declaration of sounds and songs and and hymns being sung. And then, after all that, the officiating priest would would enter into the outer part of the sanctuary. So he'd move kind of out of this further ground. He'd move a little closer in. And he would trim the lamps and light the incense. And at that point, when the officiating priest disappeared into the building after lighting the the incense, he would turn, he'd go behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies, the one place that only the high priest could go. And those worshipers in attendance could then offer their private, yet often out loud, prayers to God. While the incense was rising, their prayers would rise. An example of this precise ritual actually appears in the beginning of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1 where Zechariah, if you remember, had the privilege of offering up the incense in the sanctuary before departing to the Holy of Holies, um, uh, where an angel appeared to him to tell him of the coming birth of his son, would be John the baptizer. In verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, And the, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So already in Luke's story, he's already told us about this regular habit, right? The story began, Jesus' the story began with a priest, offering an atoning sacrifice, lighting the incense, going into the Holy of Holies, being confronted by an angel, while the people were outside praying. This entire elaborate production, full of sights and sounds and smells, was built on the presumption that being in relationship with God was pivotal pivotal to daily life. That being in right relationship with God mattered, right? And it mattered for everything. Again, not just for their religious sensibility, But for their relationship with one another and their relationship with the earth, everything they did mattered, what came around this relationship with God. And that such a relationship was possible, but that it would require something done on their behalf to ensure that it was experienced. They couldn't just enter into it on their own. They needed something to happen, this sacrificial system, this ritual, for them to be able to enter into the wholeness of that relationship. The necessity of life with God and the acts necessary to encroach upon this life was twice daily displayed. This wasn't just like a one-off deal on occasion. It isn't like Easter where it comes around once a year. This was every day, twice a day, all days. At one particular moment, again, as incense rises towards the heavens, the visible and scented reminder that our words to God are real and really taken in, these men pray. We shouldn't move too quickly past this. These men come to prayer at the act of atonement. They come to prayer when atonement is being made. The sacrifice of sins is being made. The visible manifestation of their most fundamental for daily life need. What what it was, communion with the Holy God, and how it could be met by the sacrifice of an innocent lamb, enacted right before their eyes. That's when they pray. One, says verse 10, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two men who, to the visible eye, could hardly be more different, especially in this place. Both pray. But isn't that what, what the, the, the psalmist said would happen? That even these two men, who seem diametrically opposed in every way, find themselves at a place where they need their sins covered, pardoned, forgiven. They need relationship right with God. What does the psalmist say? We all arrive at your doorstep sooner or later loaded with guilt. Our sin's too much for us one knows it comes every day to it the pharisee respected in the community respectful in his observable behavior and devoted to doing everything necessary to ensure welcome in god's presence and the welcome of god's presence in his community he knew that by going in and making sure his relationship with the lord was good through pretending to sacrifice every day that he'd be able to to walk in right relationship with the lord outside of it not just be with god in this moment but be with god throughout all his other ways of relating throughout the day. The other is a tax collector. Disrespected by his community, no matter how well he tows the line in his profession, he is caught in the, comp- the competing systems of his day. He's pulled out of his community in his obligation to the oppressive government, ritually and by the very nature of his profession and actions. He is ill-prepared to come into God's place, much less leave with God's presence, and yet he still longs for it. He still wants it. He still knows he needs it. Nevertheless, both men are here. And both men are here for the same reason. To commune with God. To relate rightly to Him because their sins will be atoned for. And to live their day atoned. In right relationship with God. That's why they've come. Both men assume that their relating with God is vital to their lives. And both will do what is necessary to interact. One, all the things and mores will observe that his religion requires... The other, the social suffering, scoffing, and humiliation that would certainly befall him as he entered this place. Both men committed to being here now at this particular hour, and both fully fully given into their commitment, both sacrificing to be in this place. In verse eleven, we get to know one man. The Pharisee, standing by himself apart from the other worshipers, prayed thus, God, I thank you because I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. The Pharisee stands apart from the congregation not because he longs for some quiet personal moment with God. This service was not meant for purely individual worship, but a communal coming to God. And especially in in the first century and even still today, in this type of setting, Everyone prays aloud and together, even if it's an individual prayer. Not like us, where we all pray really quietly in our own, right? So just imagine this is not meant to be just a quiet moment with the Lord. There's some of that that happens certainly there, but this is a communal event. So he doesn't stand alone to be alone, at least alone with God. Rather, he stands aloof because of his devotion to being ritually clean in the presence of God. His devotion to holiness is what keeps him separated. The congregation gathered to worship uh, were a mixed bunch, especially at these atonement services, right? These are daily, dawn at 3 o'clock, the ninth hour. This is where everybody comes because they know they're relating rightly to God is what is going to help them relate rightly to others and into their work and to life. And so they come. This is a regularly attended thing, and it's pretty open. It starts, out again, at the outer court. And so you've got all kinds of people who were prepared to be there or some who weren't. The congregation gathered to worship is mixed. And if not most many if not most trusted that their relation to god was vital to their daily life but still whether out of ignorance or inability most would not have been especially careful to be ritually pure they wouldn't have followed all the levitical laws to make sure they entered into the place and didn't touch anything they weren't supposed to didn't say anything they weren't supposed to didn't do anything they weren't supposed to while there's no condemnation at least verbally from the pharisee for these good-hearted souls if he were to brush up Against one of them, accidentally. Their unholiness, as ignorantly innocent or unavoidable as it was, could rub off on him. At least that's what the Pharisees thought. And he would be like them, less ready to be with God and go with God. It would actually keep him from doing the thing that he thought he was called to do. And so the Pharisee stands apart from the worshipers, as he would have every single day. And he prays. But this time... He notices someone else standing apart from the congregation too. And this is when the genuinely devoted prayer and his faith is revealed. Most likely the Pharisee knows this tax collector. We don't think about that, but it's not a big city. It's not a big place. The worshipers, especially at the temple, would have been rather regulars. Everyone knows the tax collectors. Maybe this particular one. Maybe he was abused by him taken advantage by him. Or at the very least, he has been the face of oppression for the people of Israel. And so the, tax, the Pharisee most likely knows this person, either by reputation or by interaction. Stimulated by the sight of the tax collector, he knows he's a tax collector. He just prays and he sees a tax collector. He's not wearing a badge that says tax collector, right? <laughs> not walking around with a big old sign that says tax collector. To recognize him as a tax collector means he's known him, he's seen him actually do the work of tax collecting. He knows it, right? And so, stimulated by the sight of the tax collector in this place, the Pharisee prays aloud. At least that's what the original language suggests that this prayer is not an internal prayer, it's an external prayer, which would have been common and normal in the setting. Wouldn't necessarily have been weird. These words come from the inside of the Pharisee, and like the incense, what is unseen becomes seen. He prays and thanks God that his life is not like that of a rogue swindler. That's what an extortioner and unjust person is a rogue swindler in the original language, which is a name used before a tax collector. So if this tax collector's name was say Jeremy, right? It would be that, thank God I'm not like the rogue swindler Jeremy, right? Rogue swindler tax collector, rogue swindler Jeremy, like, like you use that. You can't say tax collector just say tax collector as a Jew, as a good Jew, right? You've got to kind of give a little bit of like spit when you, when you say the word tax collector and you refer to that person. Because they're a person who is, as the next word says, an adulterer. They're ones who have cheated on their first love, the one that they're bound to in covenant relationship. They're a traitor, which is just another euphemism for such a person's trade as tax collecting. To be an adulterer is to be a tax collector. To be a tax collector is to be an adulterer. So the tax collector prays with this vial towards this person, right? He he comes, what comes out of his mouth is this spit of, thank God I am not like this blankety-blank who's sitting over here blanking, right? Like, I mean, honestly, like, that's what it would have been like, right? In as, in as pious of, of Christianese as you can get, right? And so that's, that's what the tax collector, or that's what the Pharisee prays. The Pharisee is grateful that his observable actions don't do what this guy's observable actions do, which is swindle people, take advantage of people, break down the covenant and relationship with God and others, do disservice to the name of God, right? He's He's grateful that his actions are the opposite end, that are the actions of actually making God glorified and helping bring people to the presence of the Lord. But his gratitude turns quickly into condescension as he sees and names the tax collector in the room. You see, the Pharisee is not merely grateful for a life lived in step with goodness, truth, and beauty. Such a prayer would be something like this. Thank you, Lord, for keeping my feet on your path. A common psalmic expression, one often read in the services like the one the Pharisees attending. After the clang and the clash of the cymbal and the psalm is read, the psalm is, Thank you, Lord, for keeping us on your path. For not letting us stumble and fall like the fools and those around us. Right? So it's a gratitude, it's a recognition that my life is different from this person's life, but it's by your grace. It's you who kept us this way. That's not what the Pharisee prays. They've said, he is grateful, he is grateful that he is more righteous than this other person. That He's better off than this other person. And it's not just that, I'm, that I didn't do the things that the person does, but now he uses this, this kind of spilling out hate towards this person. And he assumes the worst of what he sees in his neighbor. Again, he just looks at him and all this stuff comes out. All this judgment comes out. All this stuff inside of his own heart comes out, right? And perhaps the audacity of the spoken word's revelation catches him for a moment. Maybe he didn't know how much vile and hatred he had towards the tax collector until that moment of course he knew that his life was different than that those guys but to have that guy right here in worship all of a sudden all this stuff comes up and it surprises him have you guys, have you ever experienced anything like that in prayer Where in prayer something comes up that you don't really like that you weren't prepared for that reveals your heart not as pure and as clean as you would like it to be. Is prepared for the presence of God as you wanted it to be. If you haven't, you haven't prayed quite enough. We'll get you know. We'll have plenty of opportunity for that. I mean, that's that's all of us, right? We've all been there. In the revelation of his own heart, I think offends his sense of good standing and of being set apart, because this is what he prays next. I fast twice a week. I give ties. Of all I purchase. He says, Look, I really am better off with God than others. I really am. I really am good and righteous and in good standing. I do more than the obligatory festival fast. I fast twice a week. I do more than give what I make, what I grow, what I what I what I harvest. I actually give on what I purchase. I actually give on what's already been tithed. My stomach and my wallet back up my devotion, essentially, is what the Pharisee prays. After a prayer that revealed his disdain, his contempt, at the moment at which atonement is being made. I mean, just think about the irony of this, right? At the moment where God is covering the sins of, God, of his people and his sin is revealed, he prays not pleading for God to make atonement for him, not receiving what is happening in front of him, to save him from his judgment, to act with great deeds on his salvation as God has done in the past and does on a daily basis, twice a day in the temple. Instead, he speaks of his own justification, his own righteous loyalty, his own response to what God has done as the validation of his relationship with God. He speaks of his own response to grace as his validation for his own righteousness, for his own right standing. How many of us have done that? When our heart's revealed, and where things are broken inside of us come up, when our disdain, our hate, or whatever it might be, how many of us quickly begin going to justifying? hey, no, no, we're still, we're still good, we're not as bad as we just prayed. We're not as unclean as we just made ourselves. Like, we really are good. Like, I, really, like I know I said I hated this person, but I actually really do. I, 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 I love them. I love these other people. I've, I've made sure that everything is good. Like, I really act really well to my, 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 my employees, my staff, my family, whatever. We, we tend to justify this, right? And this is what the Pharisee does. He sees his own good actions as making up for whatever lacks in his heart or disposition. He sees God's people in place, but he doesn't see the heart of God in the place for his people. He forgets that, that the very place he is in and the time that he is there is the time of making holy what is unholy. That he's actually come to the place for him to be made clean. And rather than resting on that fact, on God's action, he trusts in what he can see and what others can see in himself. He sees his neighbor, his offender, and all the visible ills. Even some of the made-up ones, probably. Then he car- that he carries, that his neighbor carries, but he doesn't see what is actually happening right in front of his face. The Pharisee is actually missing out on the very service he's attended. He's actually missing out on the very service he's attended. Verse 13, But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, make atonement for me a sinner. Just a few feet away, standing along the back wall is one who sees himself perhaps all too well. His life has not prepared him to enter this place with these people. If anything, his choices, you don't just become a tax collector by being born into it, you choose it. His choices have made re-entry only a distant hope and a humiliating one at that. And so he keeps his eyes to the ground, not because he doesn't want to become unclean, but because he knows he is and really doesn't want the looks and the scowls that are sure to come around. Nevertheless, something inside him has drawn him into this place, to God. Perhaps the same power that drew the Pharisee standing there, who had given his life to being prepared to be in God's presence. That same thing that at one point drew the Pharisee into life with God is maybe the same thing that's drawing the tax collector to want a right relationship with God. He knows deep within that his life depends on being here in this place with these people. Even if it won't be easy. Even if he's not sure where or what comes next. Something in his heart aches for this. And so perhaps, unconsciously, he beats his chest at the sacrifice made before him. Now that may sound strange for us or may just be a throwaway for us. But that action... The description of someone beating their chest, their hand over their heart, it was a sign to the welling women of Israel. In the Old Testament, it's only used for the welling women, the women who were, were meant to come at the point of lament, at the time of great brokenness, to cry out for God. They would beat their chest. So a man would never beat his chest. It was only women that would beat their chest, and they would beat their chest to call the people in to worship, into lament, into brokenness. We only actually see men lamenting in this kind of way again think of it as a a honor shame culture right so there's a distinction so like by saying that the women did it and men didn't it wasn't that it was wrong or bad it was just this distinction that had been made right and so to do this as a man would be kind of to admit to yourself like to go into a place where like you're not you're not at this rank right so it's kind of like a reversing of of position in in this culture at this time okay and so the only time we see men beating their chest will actually be a little bit later in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 23. Only, the only other time is when those leaving Golgotha after witnessing Jesus' execution. This is what it says in Luke 23. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice from the cross, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent, much like the lamb that was sacrificed, right? And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. It's the only other time in our scriptures we see this phrase. And we see men included in it, right? At the the atoning sacrifice here in Jesus' parable, and at the atoning sacrifice of Jesus himself. Like the Pharisee, the tax collector of prayer comes from the heart. God, make atonement for me, a sinner. God, I am here, and so are you. Cover my sins. Atone for them. Bind my broken bones. Atone for them. Remove my iniquity. Atone for them. There is nothing I can do. Only you can, and you will, by the blood of a lamb, innocent and slain. He sees what's happening in front of him and says, that's for me. It's for me. God, please let it be for me. The sacrifice that's happening, the clanging of the symbols, the moving into the Holy of Holies, the bringing of the presence of God to God's people and God's people into his presence. That's for me. Let it be for me. Tax collector sees his need, his true longing, and God's gracious generosity to fulfill both. At least that's what we see in his prayer. Though there's no indication that his clarity of sight at that moment has changed his daily tasks, he leaves still a tax collector. He gives no indication of life turned over, turned around, simply one that recognizes in this moment he is in need for God to make right what he makes wrong to restore a relationship, to atone. And he believes that God is doing it for him. It's here, as the upstanding Pharisee, whose commitments and habits were literally the model to the worshiping community, leaves, still a model. And the tax collector, whose very vocation was an affront to the community, leaves, still an affront to the community. At that moment, Jesus speaks, revealing the truth of what we see playing out in this parable. I tell you, Jesus went on to say, the tax collector went down to his house, made righteous, is the actual literal translation. Your term might be justified, like in your Bible, but it's made righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one mentioned first is now mentioned last, and the last first. The tax collector... Only pleading for God to act, to do what God does, to let what God does be effective for him, to be enough for him, to be applied to him. But does no other actions himself, has nothing else, no other actions to stand upon. Goes home justified, made righteous, saved by an act done for him. While the Pharisee, confident in what he can do, what he has done, and what he will do again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, goes to his house, ignorant of what he is missing. Then Jesus repeats for a second time in his Samaritan travels, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word exalted means literally to be drawn close to God. It doesn't mean to be made proud, to be an example. It means to be drawn close, to be drawn up to God. It describes being delivered to God. Again, like the psalmist said, blessed are the ones you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. That's one who's exalted. Who's there because God's awesome deeds, because of His righteousness, our salvation. So listen, if we're going to make it through the Lenten journey and arrive home to life through death on Easter morning, we have to be prepared to not deliver ourselves from our issues, our neediness, not to turn when our heart's revelation is not exactly what we wanted it to be, not to run to our past actions or right attitudes or our commitments to ensure our place in His presence, but to recognize only God can and God has exalted us, brought us in to His poem. We must be willing to start again, Where all faith begins, pleading God's action on our behalf. If we come up to the atoning offering saved in our own efforts, commitments, desires, and dispositions, confident in what we've done and what we'll do again tomorrow, we'll miss what is happening right in front of us. The innocent sacrificed because of us. Yes, us. And we'll leave attempting to live on the other side of Easter, ignorant of life offered to us, life offered for us, and so not live again at all. You know, there's a little bit of dissatisfaction with this story, if it's not about prayer. And I, I mean it only in this. How many of us right now want to fill the rest of the story out with a text collector giving up his job, returning to what he's taken, returning what he's taken, making right his life? How many of us want the rest of the story to play out like that? Well, the tax collector just doesn't go back to tax collecting, which is what the story says. He just goes back into his day, went back to his home, into his work. But we want it to be different, to be a grand giving up of all things. And listen, we'll get to that story. That story actually comes in Luke 19. (laughs) But Jesus won't let us start there or in there. The offensiveness of this story is not just in the Pharisee going home, missing the reason for his going up to the temple. The whole reason for his commitment and dedication, the reason for it isn't because he's, he's lived up to the loyalty. It's that he still needs it every single day. And it's given to him every single day. Mercies are new each morning. Every morning I'll wake into grace poured out richly upon it, Lavished, as Paul would say in Ephesians. To wake up into that reality every single day. Defensiveness isn't just that the Pharisee goes home missing why he went to the temple in the first place, while the tax collector gets what he came for. It's the fact that our most fundamental need, our need to be right in right relationship with God, not just for our relationship with God in a religious sense, but for all of our life, for our homes and our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our communities, to be a part of the kingdom come in the grand ways that we've talked about. It's not at all dependent on what we can do, or will do, or have done, but on what He was willing to do. That indeed we are recipients, not sustainers of grace. We are recipients of grace and not sustainers of it. We don't have an atoning offering or an hour of incense anymore. But we do have a cross whose image reminds us of the dramatic nature of our most fundamental need, and our Heavenly Father's willingness to ensure we have the opportunity to receive it. We have in symbols each week a reminder that to make things right, a Lamb was slain, Jesus' life was broken for our behalf. We don't have clanging cymbals and clashing sounds, though, you know, every once in a while we've had a drum. It's kind of cool. But we do have a reminder a sprinkling of blood, a pouring out of life, of a new covenant, a promise made that all we need is given to us if we'll simply receive it. So for a minute, before we enter into song and we stand and share and come and receive what Jesus offers, let's consider that scene from Luke 23 one more time. Assuming like those persons... You've come to this place to commune with God, to be in His presence and leave the same with His presence into all the labors ahead, exalted, drawn up because of what He has done. Hear the words, I'll read them for us, and then we'll have a few moments of silence to consider how we'll pray. In this hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We're at the same service that these men were. While the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this, was, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. I'll pray. And then, like I said, we'll just have a couple moments of quiet. To lift up our prayers. In this hour of incense. Father. thank you that our need is evident to you and that your willingness to meet that need is evident to us may such revelation free us to be needy To be one who receive and so live by grace.